in a global industry where anything can happen, where mistakes can cost far more than dollars. One oil and gas sales expert, one HSE professional, and the greatest PPE provider on the planet must come together. Two men, one brand, one mission. Red Wings Oil and Gas HSE podcast with Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister starts now. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, and this show is for everybody who has an interest in HSE in the oil and gas industry. Brought to you by Red Wing, the leaders in PPE, ensuring your people go home safe every day. Joining me today is my mind-boggling co-host, Patrick Pister. Hey, oh, Mark, mind-boggling. That's, a, that's an interesting one. <laughs> uh, and, and Patrick, what show is this? Yeah, this is episode number 38. And we actually have a guest today. We have Araya. Araya, I'm not going to try to pronounce your last name. Oh, it's easy. You can do it. Guru Swami. Guru Swami. I yeah. can do that. Yeah. Uh, with energy funds. Now, Raya, I've actually known you for quite a while now. Yeah, yeah. Before we start talking about energy funds, let's kind of talk about your background. How did you even get in this industry? How did I get here? So I started off uh, working in, um, in oil and gas in the uh, downstream sector, first of all, in construction, EPC, for uh, one of the major EPC companies out there. Right. And then uh, by through that, was working around the industry and moved around the world quite a lot. Lived in Canada, West Africa. Korea, and uh, then came back about eight years ago to work over here in Houston, yeah. in the upstream. So I've been in the oil and gas field for about 10 years now, and uh, like I said, started off in downstream and was there for about you know the first four or five years, and then moved into upstream, and then been working on focusing on upstream ever since. Yeah, and you don't sound like you're from West Texas. No, not from West Texas. <laughs> <laughs> um, born and brought up in West Africa, Nigeria. Right. Family's from India. They moved to Nigeria about 40 years ago for an opportunity, and this was when Nigeria was booming, and there I was, and there I was raised. Yeah, another oil center of the world, Nigeria. It is, very much so, yeah. But I actually grew up in the nor- north of the country, which is very removed from uh, most of the oil business, but you still can't really uh, help it not get into you, and you're exposed by it. The country is dominated by it. I didn't plan on going into oil and gas, you know. Really? Straight out of you know university. It's kind of just one of those things that happened, I suppose, by some fortuitous way I was attracted into it. But uh, yeah, so I came into oil and gas about 10 years ago. But yeah, not from Houston, but Houston's now home, been here and uh, learned to uh, really make the best of it. Did you start over in Nigerian oil and gas or were you here in the States? No, no, no. Straight straight from um, Nigeria, came over to the U.S. University and straight into oil and gas from there. And like I said, it was was not planned. It was just destiny. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. So you say you're not from here. I, I've, I don't know about you, Patrick. I only know one person that's actually born and raised in Houston. Very few Houston. people that are actually yeah, from Houston. Sure. A lot of lot of transplants. Yeah, for sure. I mean, my whole neighborhood is everyone. Actually, off the 10 houses on my cul-de-sac, I think two are from proper Houston. Yeah, I think it's actually really cool. A lot of people that are listening to us that, that don't spend time here won't think of this, but Houston is the number one most multicultural city in the U.S. Absolutely. And it's awesome because my son's going to grow up with literally no prejudices, right? Yeah. He's going to know people for people. And I just think that's a cool byproduct. Absolutely. Yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So um, so you went, you came to Houston, got an oil and gas industry, moved around a bit, ended up working for one of the super majors out there. Yep. And in the process of you working at super major, eventually you started doing a lot of stuff with rigs, didn't you? I did. So when I was at the super major, BP, yeah. I was at BP, I was in their rigs team and started off in the risk group uh, right after, you know, the big incident that we had back in 2010. And uh, starting off in risk and addressing all those major risk issues that happened as a result of the incident. 
So addressing them, how to mitigate them, minimize them. And through that, kind of got more and more involved in rigs, rig systems, rigs engineering, and then uh, eventually got into the whole commercial side of rigs. So what does it take? What does it need? What do we need to bring a rig into the company? What, where are they going to go? Um, resources planning. And so just really the whole life cycle of bringing a, a rig into a super major and what that looks like. All right. So before you can back up a little bit further. So you are actually in risk mitigation for rigs after the Macondo. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's <laughs> a hot place to be. Oh, at that for point sure. In I mean, we were front and center of it. Quite frankly, that where the horizon came out was the group that, you know, the, our group would have touched that rig at one point or another before that rig went to work. So um, certainly that those groups and BP had this major shift and, you know, full com um, credit to them. They really bolstered their risk organization and we did everything to make sure that nothing like that could ever, ever happen again in the industry. And, you know, so we were very much at the center of attention in the company very early on. We had some, a lot of it, a lot of heavy hitters from all over the company kind of focused on our team to make sure that, you know, every rig that came into BP from that point onwards met a strict level of compliance to BP standards, international standards. And uh, yeah, we, we did not leave any stone unturned. Yeah, one of the things that is a byproduct of that that I thought was so cool that the story's never told in public is that the whole industry came together to help. Yep, for and sure. it was done not because people that would normally be competitors were working together, right? And I, it was like this most wonderful response to see the entire industry globally say, we're gonna get control of that well. And for they sure. did. Yeah. So it's, um, I want to back up a little more. A lot of our audience may not understand upstream, the relationship between operators and rigs. So in a nutshell, BP doesn't own an offshore rig. No, especially not in the Gulf of Mexico. We do own some rigs, BP, should I say, owns some rigs out in you know other parts of the world, Azerbaijan and the North Sea, and that's more legacy issues. But certainly in the Gulf of Mexico, BP is not an owner of any of these assets. They're Mad all, Dog or Thunder Horse? I thought you all actually own... No, those are on the production side. Okay, so on the yeah. drilling side. I got you. I should be clear there. On the drilling side, we do not own any of those assets. So. And that's not just a BP thing. That's how almost all major operators are. Pretty so where much. do you get the rigs from? We get them from all the major drilling contractors of the world. So Transocean, Sea Drills, Rowan, uh, all those guys have the rigs, and we want them. And we fought pretty hard to get those rigs. Yeah, and so you basically, the majors, and not just the super majors, the majors, the big independents in Knox, they basically rent rigs from drilling contractors. Now, Patrick, you got a lot of experience in that world. A lot of experience. Actually, um, talking about the Macondo incident, I was working for Transocean in Angola shortly before that and was trying to get back to the Gulf of Mexico ended up going back to school and get my MBA, mm -hmm. but there were only two rigs that Transocean had in the Gulf of Mexico at the time. 50-50 chance I would have been on the rig that, you know, the incident happened on. Yeah, so, for sure. Yeah, I, you know, I I'm definitely know the upstream side of drilling and, and working with the operators on the, yep. on the contractor side. Yeah, yeah. And so our audience, I hope you understand what I'm trying to explain here, is that the people that actually have the leases that operate the wells have to rent a rig, or they choose to rent a rig from somebody else. And so you start having multiple touch points and multiple configurations and multiple companies, and that rig world starts getting complex, doesn't it? For well, sure. Not, and not the rigs. The, I mean, the, the, the cement, the, you know, all the service companies yeah. that are on I mean, there. There's, I mean, there's so many different parties in there. And at the end of the day, what's interesting is from the operator side, there's a handful of people actually on the rig, physically on the rig, full time. There might be people coming in every so often, but physically on the rig, we might have five or six. Of Three. Them. Yeah, exactly, yeah. you know. And so, so how does a how does a company how does an operator manage that kind of risk? You've got so many companies working for you that you don't man, you don't directly control. 
their vendors. How, as a risk side of things, how did you manage that? For sure. And, you know, so that's kind of where our team came into the picture. Um, starting at BP, this was called, uh, within the drillings group, this was the global wells team, so the rigs engineering team. So we made sure every aspect of the engineering side of that rig was up to BP standards. And there was a lot of different players. And the relationships became very complicated because sometimes, you know, we didn't have direct relationships with some of these vendors. These vendors had relationships with the owner of the rig, who is Transocean or Seadrill. And so the vendors are, you know, the NOVs and the Camerons of the world. But we're still wanting to see what they're doing, what their, you know, input onto the rig is. So it became very complicated. That We still had to stay on top of all of that. We had to monitor their documentation. We had to monitor their procedures because we wanted to know, especially after what had happened, we were, again, leaving no stone unturned. Absolutely. On the contract side, you know, it's knock for knock. You take care of your people, we take care of ours. Right. But ultimately, you're the operator. You're the... Uh, you know, ultimately responsible, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So it did get a bit complicated, and that was kind of one of the things that our group was trying to streamline in those relationships and making it a much you know, more streamlined organization as far as managing those relationships and making sure we were standardized and consistent and how we did it across the world, because that was one of the criticisms, is that the way we did it in the Gulf of Mexico wasn't the same day that we did it in Brazil, in the North Sea. And so there was definitely that standardization that was really necessary that needed to happen within the company. Yeah, but so standardization is great from a HSE point of view. It, mm. it helps improve um, safety and, and for everything. It helps reduce the environmental impact. It also helps reduce, reduce costs. So once you can start sure. standardizing stuff, but the requirements in the North Sea are different than they are in the Gulf, which Absolutely. is different than they are in Brazil, which is different than they are in Africa. So you had to understand all those different requirements yeah. while you're trying to standardize the rigs when you're out there actually drilling. Yeah, absolutely. Simple yet complicated, right? So, um, and, you know, and to add to that complexity, you know, because we could in that environment when oil was 120, we were getting into, stand, you know, getting into different designs in the same region. And that's where it just really got out of hand. And that's when costs just skyrocketed. But, you know, there again, there is this real need across within the company, within the industry to standardize. And that's just got to benefit the industry as a whole, where we can start getting the same product from all the different vendors. And we know what we're getting. And there's, you know, there's a few kinks and vagaries based on the operator, but not not something that's got to cost you, you know, two, three million dollars in changes. And that's just not efficient. That's not good business. Yeah, it actually made our predictions for 2017 that the offshore industries could start uh, standardizing things to lower costs and improve efficiencies. Yeah. All right, so you have all this rig experience, right? Doing all complex yeah. type of work all right. over the world, and you decided to do your own thing. Yeah. So it was kind of one of these uh, interesting things that happened, um, you know, timing-wise, where BP was in the process of having grown so much, uh, and then you know when the oil price essentially tanked. They were in a position where they were laying off people. And it was a good thing and a bad thing in that I was laid off from BP. And so fair credit to BP and some of the major companies, you know, out there where they really treated their people very fairly. And, they, you know, they let them go on very good conditions. So and that was kind of a great thing. Um, and that was kind of the impetus I needed, at least, or the cushion I needed to go off and try and start my own business. Um, played around with a, different co a couple of different models, but then what I settled in on, and actually, Mark, this is something I have to actually credit you on, because there was once a podcast or a, a piece of information that you put out a long time ago saying, what makes someone an expert in something? So someone's an expert when they've got about five years of experience, and I think you put a, a number, a 2,000 hours or something like that. 10,000 hours. 10,000 yeah. hours, yeah. right. You, you, put, you put a number on that. I was like, you know, and I was doing something else, which was not really related to what I'd done at VP, and then I was thinking, well, I have 
over five years with BP. I've probably, probably t more than 10,000 hours. I know this stuff. And I also have credibility in this stuff now. Why don't I just focus in on that? And that was kind of the shove that I needed to say, let, let, me, let me focus in on this field, which is, again, what made me start off in, this, in, the, um, in the rig space. And so at the end of the day, what my company is trying to do is clear out this oversupplied rig and equipment market. You know, anyone who knows uh, the rigs market right now just knows that there's a lot of rigs that are sitting out there. Absolutely. And what do we do with them? So again, what I was looking to do was clear out this market. This market has a lot of rigs that just are probably never going to go back to work, right. offshore and onshore. And that is kind of why uh, I'm playing in both those spaces. You have a lot of companies, especially the major ship brokers who are now rig brokers of the world, think um, Clarkson's, Plateau, Basso, um, Fernley's offshore. These are all major offshore rig ship brokers. They deal with the transoceans and the sea drills of the world. What I thought I'd come in and do is deal with the smaller players. So... Certainly not the transoceans, but the people the transoceans of the world sell to and who sell again those rigs. So the third or fourth owner of that asset, those are the companies that don't necessarily have the, the capability to put a rig and just leave it there. And as they call it, warm or cold stack a rig. A warm stack is where you have the rig and the lights are on, but it's not doing anything. And the cold stack is where the, you know everything is off. The keys are kind of you know, nowhere to be found. So to help our, our audience understand, so um, uh, bore, um, bore drilling. For sure. Uh, just bought Transocean's Jackup fleet. Absolutely. Would you be in that mix or would you be after bore or maybe after the next one? Where, where Yeah, so that's, that's, a, that's a really good point. That's a fantastic um, kind of segue is to, I mean, very relevant. Bore drilling bought all of Transocean's Jackup fleet for, you know, a couple of billion, 1.3, I forget. 40-something percent of the right. actual cost. Value yeah. of the rig. Yeah. So each rig was actually valued at 80 million. And so those would be a kind of a company that I would certainly, you know, love to target a smaller drilling contractor that's looking at the market, scouting the market, saying, where are those real deals to be had? Uh, where are those owners of vessels who are, I wouldn't say hurting, but just can't really afford to keep these rigs on their books? And there's a, there's a definitely a few that have popped up with some VC money that are just kind of sit, sitting on it. Um, Absolutely. There's um, one in Galleria Tower here that I walk by because my wife is in that building. And they've never had a receptionist at their desk, but I know the guys that are um, that are running the company. So they haven't bought any rigs yet, but they're just kind of sitting back and waiting for the right time. Absolutely, and it's interesting you mentioned that because I've been in touch with a couple of uh, PE firms out of New York City, and they have got you know some real cash behind them to go out and acquire these assets that are now, you know, thirty. 30% of, or 30 cents the dollar, should I say, of what the actual value is. So amazing discounts to be had in this space. But uh, only on worth it if you can put those rigs to work. Exactly. And then the, the process, one thing, so this is the HS&E show, and you actually have a bit of an environmental education background. I do, I do. So I was kind of a, an environmental, uh, should I say junkie, when <laughs> I was in, in a university. And I, I, I wanted to go, you know, be kind of an environmentalist, uh, semi should I say? And um, one thing led to another, and I started off an environmental group of an oil and gas company. And then that took me into the safety world, where I was working you know, in major construction and risk-related safety issues. And then, um, yeah, so my background actually is full-blown risk, HSC, you know, safety. It's funny. So um, when I went to college, too, I wanted to save the planet. So my mm -hmm. degree is in wildlife management. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and then look where I am. <laughs> um, yeah. But anyway, so... 
part of the whole reason we have you on the show is there's a huge environmental and safety factor about these rigs, when, especially when they're cold sack. A lot of people may not yeah. understand this. For sure. When you shut a rig down completely, when there's no generation, there's no electricity, there's nothing running, they're not designed to do that. No. 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 And so, and they're also sitting in salt water if they're offshore. But you have all these other parts and pieces. You know, we talked today at lunch about blowout preventers, talked yep. about trees, you know, plenty of mats, all that sort of stuff. And if it's not uh, taken care of properly, it's actually a risk both from a physical Huge. safety point of view Huge. and an environmental impact point of view. Absolutely. I mean, you know, at BP, that was this big argument that we used to have saying, well, it's new, that's wonderful, but it's been sitting in a yard in a warehouse and has absolutely no preservation. Now, preservation, you know, just to be clear about that is, this is a VOP. That's supposed to be subsea, underwater, not supposed to be sitting on the dock in a warehouse somewhere. And it's exposed to the elements over there. So that is not a good thing for a start. Secondly, um, you have the certifications. You have this equipment that needs to be maintained. Those certifications are possibly not being maintained over here. So that's another huge liability. So what I'm trying to do is look at equipment on the market that has been preserved, has been certified, has been maintained properly. And again, equipment that's probably not going to go back to work in the U.S. and move that out of the U.S. to markets where there is a demand. And where is that? Asia, Africa, Middle East, South America, just to you know, very high level. These are companies or firms that have potentially state backing that have the dollars that can invest in equipment that they could never have probably invested in in three or four years ago when oil was 120 or so. Right. Now they can. Now U.S. equipment is competitive and it's good quality and it's probably much safer than anything you'll ever get from you know any other part of the world. Yeah, we're going to dance around because I'll tell you right now, stuff from China is not, does not no. hold up in quality to, no. to stuff of the U.S. And now you can get the U.S. Uh, materials and the rigs for pennies on the dollar. Absolutely. And so if you're operating in another part of the world, you have a, a, a obligation both to the environment and to your people to to make sure you bring in safe equipment. Yeah. And and literally that's what you're helping to do. For sure. You know, this is it's a it's a down environment. Out of a down environment, we're trying to create an opportunity here. Rigs equipment are now affordable for companies that could not otherwise or previously have obtained them. The cost to move them from wherever they are, might be Corpus Christi, uh, might be Brownsville, you know, anywhere in the US to wherever it needs to go in Southeast Asia, Singapore, Nigeria, is actually l more than half right now. So that in itself, the cost to move and mobilize, plus the lower cost, makes this equipment very attractive for buyers outside of the U.S. And again, that's the opportunity that we see. Yeah, and the thing I think is fascinating about your business model is this is your background. You know this inside and out. So then you also know who the rig owners are, right? Yeah. So you and you also know who the potential buyers are. Right. So you can make sure that the buyers get high quality equipment because they can't fool you, right? And you know where it's coming yeah. from. And you do you do this for a living. Right. And at the same time, you can also help make sure they get a good deal, you know, a good value for, sure. for their dollar. So for it's sure. kind of a win-win for everybody. And absolutely. And I'll give you a bit of an example. So l last year, we were dealing with a uh, buyer that wanted a rig, um, onshore rigs in Eastern Europe. Um, we had found them three rigs brand new, well, no, should I say 2013 rigs, NOV rigs that were um, certainly not new, but the equipment was fully maintained, recertified. The rig itself should have been valued about when it was built at 44, 45 million dollars. The rig today was on the market for about 20. Wow. 
what happened was through our involvement with the buyer, uh, with the seller, we got that down from 20, 18, 15, settled at 11.6. Wow. That was the end price for this rig. And you got a high-end NOV rig. It was, I mean, by all standards, if you, you know, if, if you, if you know rigs, this was a beautiful rig. Yeah. <laughs> So, and that's the rigs that are competing in the market now. These newer recertified equipment on older substructures. So the infrastructure of the rig is older, but the equipment is all recertified, and that'll compete any day with any of the stuff you get out of China. Yeah, and it's once again, it's it's more responsible because it's a higher quality. The attention to quality control For sure. from beginning to end is much, much, much higher. Absolutely, Mark. I mean, I was visiting a, a rig manufacturer over here, and you know, we were talking about some of their prices, and he was showing me some of their steel beams. He's like, I know exactly where this piece of steel beam has come from. If there's ever a defect on it, we can always go back to the OEM of this piece of steel beam and you know, figure it out and make sure that you know, we are sourcing the best material for you. You can't do that out of China. Uh, they won't. It's yeah, impossible. Out of, no way. But again, in this market, that was previously unaffordable. Today, it's affordable. We can get that stuff for cheap. Hey, Patrick, I'm going to throw Red Wing a plug here because what you just talked about, that understanding your supply chain from beginning to end to be able to trace all the way back to raw feedstock, our sponsor, Red Wing Boots, that's what they do with their boots. They can trace the leather back to the, the actual slaughterhouse, sure. to the actual guy butchering the, the cow. Yeah, and it's all for the exact same reason. They, mm -hmm. they have such a tight control over quality. They want to be able to fix anything, even if it's in the very beginning of the manufacturing process. Absolutely. And, you know, at BP, on you know, uh, something as simple as a rope, we could go back to the OEM. If there was ever a defect on that rope, I mean, Patrick, you know, working for Cedril, we could trace every piece of equipment back to the OEM to make sure if there ever was an incident, you could go back to the OEM to figure out where that incident came from and make sure that any other piece of that same equipment wherever it is in the world, is pulled out of service or inspected to make sure it doesn't happen again. Well, yeah, the traceability on even the most benign piece of equipment, you talk about a BOP or the entire stack. Sure. Um, I'm sure you remember, I think it was about three years ago, um, the bolts that were connecting yes. the BOP to the LMRP. Big scandal. Yeah. Um, the metallurgy was just bad, and multiple companies here in the Gulf of Mexico had to pull all the rigs just to swap out these bolts. Right. Um, and then I think a year later, a similar issue happened, because the same source was being used by right. two different BOP manufacturers, right. and they just didn't trace it all the way back to the, to the root cause. They, you know, they swapped out the bolts, but these bolts were coming from still a place. There. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah, so it's something as benign as a bolt, and these are heavy-duty bolts, sure. but still, it's not the most critical piece of the mm -hmm. stack right. by any means. Right. But just the fact that that, that problem was recognized and they were able to go and, and identify all the BOPs that had these bolts on it tells you a whole story right. about how important... HSE is in this industry, and how much work we do to make sure we can stay on top of everything. Sure. And that's awesome. I, I didn't know that story. Yeah, I heard. Sure. A, I heard a, a stack got pulled, and less than half of the connecting bolts between the LMRP and the BOP were still intact. The rest had sheared off. For sure. For sure. Uh, oh, that's scary. Yeah. So yeah. So not just on the ocean floor doing what it's supposed to do, but pulling it the entire uh, you know, length of the water column. It could have come loose at any time. For sure. And so that was you know disaster avoided right there or there. And that's again. The beauty of U.S. equipment or, you know, European standard equipment that now everyone can essentially have that. But it's a, it, I should say it's an opportunity. It's a limited window because once oil starts stabilizing, and I really hope it will at around, you know, 50s to 60s, probably hopefully higher. Unfortunately, that equipment price is going to go up. 
You know, uh, it's yeah, just the inflation of, course, yeah. of, of the market. So this is a limited window for buyers to get in and acquire a lot of that market, which is where, you know, the board drillings of the world have seen that that limited window and they just want to snap up the stuff because they believe if it does go back, you know, if prices do go back and it's a hedge they've taken, they're going to make some serious money on that rig when it goes back to work. At, you know, they've got it at, like I said, less than 50, uh, more than 50% of a discount and they can put that back to work yeah and even if it is it. this lower longer model for the oil prices mm-hmm. they've like you said they've got them at a, at a much lower sure uh, cost you know outlay sure so they they don't need to make as much revenue as the guys that bought it you know when a, sure their, their drill ship came out at 600 million when i bought it for 200 yeah i can obviously take a lower day rate for sure or in their case 90 million right? yeah so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you use your background in rigs and you started uh, energy funds basically helping people buy or sell rigs right but now you've branched off sounds like into all kinds of other oilfield service equipment yeah it's interesting you know just through this i've been getting requests on other aspects um that i never didn't necessarily have a background in but just kind of having done it making the right connections making the right meeting the right people you i've gotten requests and it's kind of what you were saying mark where you started off in one thing and then something else starts to grow as a result of that so you know in the recent not too long ago, I've had requests for things as interesting or benign as pipe, drill pipe. And, you know, I had a gentleman who talked to me and said, I want to move drill pipe to scrap drill pipe to Asia. And can you help me source that? I was like, well, you know, the guys who own rigs or some of this rig equipment, they definitely own scrap pipe. I was like, yeah, I'm sure I can. And I did. We found him the pipe and we found it at him at great prices. And he's like, look, I give me a couple of options. You know, so we found some stuff in Mexico. We found some stuff out in Houston. And we got them a you know complete package just to move that all the way over to Asia, and so that's kind of something I've been getting insult- involved with, and then now having you know some of that exposure, I've been getting again get into other things where I've been asked for consulting services or referral services for other products. So not too long ago, I've had a request out of you know uh, Nigeria for consulting services that you know they needed a, a reputable. Um, U.S. or European company to come in and help them out with a couple of um, HSE-related issues in Nigeria. And I said, yeah, for sure. You know, through my network, through um, all the things that I do in the rig space, I absolutely have those connections over here. And I'm happy to kind of, you know, bridge that gap and help you, wherever, you know, that company or that uh, entity out of Nigeria ramp up their HSC kind of uh, standards through that. Yeah, so question for you. So I understand your business model. I think it's an awesome business model because it's basically kind of a win-win for everybody. But do you also help with the whole project management logistics? Because when you move a rig, it's not like you throw it in a cardboard box and FedEx it. No, the world. no. <laughs> and that's exactly something, um, and I'm glad you asked that. I, it's, I've been getting involved with a lot lately. So one of the projects I was working on earlier this year was to move a floating offshore installation, which is essentially a drilling rig, which had a production facility on top of it, from um, where it's currently sitting in the U.S. Gulf all the way over to Southeast Asia. And so, you know, there's a whole bunch of logistics behind that that I had never been exposed to. And just going through the motions of this program really exposed me to that. So there's the cost of the dry tow, which is the most costly aspect to it. And for anyone not familiar, a dry tow is kind of an, an incredible engineering feat where you're taking a heavy lift barge, you're sinking it, you're putting it underneath a rig and you're lifting the rig up, kind of like a hauler. And, you know, the engineering and the positioning has to be spot on 
that you don't have any kind of overhang right. for this vessel, and you can tow it around the world, literally around the Cape of Good Hope, which is you know Southern Africa. Have you ever seen it, Mark? Have you ever seen those those dry boats? I actually sink? have a I actually have a picture on my desktop. It's one of those has a big spar rig on it, and um, yeah, it's is actually the first when I saw the video. It was like, oh my god, because I wasn't listening to the sound, and it's like. It's sinking, but it's doing it really slowly. <laughs> What's going on? So then I turn it up, and I realized it was designed to do that. For sure. And um, yeah, it's an incredible sight to see that. And, yeah. And, and if you make a mistake there, it's it's game over. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, there are three primary companies of the world who do this. And what's interesting, Mark, you know, and Patrick, is three years ago, the price to dry tow a vessel from the U.S. Gulf to Southeast Asia was five plus million dollars. Today, it's under two. Wow. Again, that it's very much an opportunity in this market to do that with the equipment we have, to move it across the world at half the rates that we were seeing. And so coming back to that original story is, yeah, so there was the cost to dry tow it, but there's also the insurance costs to move that around the world. You know, there's a lot of kind of marine-related insurance issues that you kind of have to get your head around to know what, how to take that rig, what kind of liabilities you need, what kind of all-risk policies you need. There's aspects to deal with regulatory the Coast Guard, you know, getting that vessel approved to move out of the U.S., it's, it is, at the end of the day, it's got to be a cargo when you put it on top of a dry lift vessel, a heavy lift vessel. So you don't necessarily have some of the Coast Guard restrictions, but you still need Coast Guard clearances. You need customs clearances. Um, there's a whole art and science behind it, and that's something that, you know, I've been doing a lot of over the last, I would say, six months. Yeah, so not only do you help connect buyers and sellers with oil fill equipment and rigs, but you have to actually help make the actual process yeah. easier. Yeah. So they don't have to worry about it themselves. Yeah, absolutely. Much. It's it's not a you know it's not a clean transaction where you know you buy a car, come drive it off. It's uh, there's a lot more to it. <laughs> yeah. Oh we talked at lunch. I mean there's we you talk about the insurance side of things. For sure. You think when you put it on a on a dry tow or even a wet tow when when tugs are gonna grab it, mm -hmm. well it's going to it's going to the scrapyard. As soon as it's out of sight it's it's done. We can consider the deal done. But just a year ago and one of the major supply boat companies was sending two rigs or yep. two two uh, anchor handlers to scrap, and they sank. Yeah, and, absolutely. And that company's still liable for all the petroleum products, whether it's fuel and anything else that was in their tanks. So they're still on the hook for something that they were throwing in in the garbage. They were just getting rid of. For sure, absolutely. And you know, you mentioned uh, scrap, Patrick. It's almost a segue into kind of the next point that we've kind of by accidentally got ourselves involved with now, where you have all these rigs in the market. Some of them are going to go back to work. A lot of them are not. Let's scrap the rest. And so there's now a scrapping market, which has become very lucrative, where rigs were previously scrapped in the likes of China, Bangladesh, India, um, Malta, Turkey. You know, so Yeah, nobody scrapped in the U.S. It nobody. Just, nobody. Too the, expensive. The costs yeah, yeah. of environmental compliance, the cost of labor just didn't make it economical. But now you can pick up these rigs for a song. And by song, I'm thinking between a hundred and three hundred thousand dollars for a jackup. So you can pick up these rigs, and the costs uh, to move it to where you need to go and somewhere along the Gulf are gonna be far less than moving it to India. And then the costs of um, environmental compliance and labor costs more than you're able to still recoup your investment by doing that in the U.S., which is a hey, you know great for us U.S. jobs to scrap this equipment, and you know it's keeping the industry alive over here.
That's cool. So, yeah. So this is a good point to stop. We um, this is where we do our Red Wing safety tip of the week. So, um, um, do you actually have a tip for our audience? Yeah, for sure. So I would say, um, you know, having worked in HSC and now um, what I'm doing in rigs, something I, I was almost a, a phrase that all that glitters is not gold. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, especially like you know, Mark, you said we talked about China. They're coming out with new stuff. It's new. It's shiny. Doesn't mean it's great, right? Versus what we have over here, it might not be sh- new and shiny. It might have a bit of rust on it, but man, take this equipment any day, any night over what they'll put out over there. And that's how it works. Yeah, it's um, it's unfortunate for the Chinese businesses, but um, because they've had such a quality issue for for the entire time they've been trying to sell oil and gas, a lot of oil and gas companies around the world just won't touch their stuff. For sure. And the U.S. is is really seen as like the flagship manufacturer. Um, and the fact that typically we're too expensive compared to some of the other places in the world. Well, now that's changed right. Right, for, for the short term. Right. So, um, um, well, yeah, and I was, you know, I was born into the, the industry when you didn't trust any Chinese equipment. We right. had we had flyers and bulletins on how to identify a Chinese-made shackle versus a U.S.-made Crosby shackle. Right. And you got it off. Right. I was blown away when I heard that rigs were being the entire rig was being built in China. Right. When I was working on the rigs, you didn't deal with any Chinese right. equipment. Right. But. Uh, don't get me wrong. There are Chinese manufacturers out there Absolutely. who are phenomenal, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Yes. But they charge the same rates as what you'd find in the U.S., and rightfully so, because they're giving you good stuff, good equipment. But then, you know, you have the equipment that is not good, and they're just competing on price. Price is not really a competitive advantage. Yeah, it's um. we talked about Red Wing a little while ago, but uh, Raya, you see the uh, offshore bag right there? Yeah, nice. If, if you'd like to win one of those, yeah. there's only one way you can win. Uh, all you do is go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. Throw your information in there. Hey, audience, you can do it too. Um, and we draw one lucky winner a week. And Patrick is going to do the Red Wing bag winner. And this week's winner of the Red Wing offshore bag is John Kennedy. He's the owner at Watson Farm and Timber. Congratulations, John. You're this week's winner of the offshore bag. If you want to win your own awesome Red Wing offshore bag, just go to redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. That's redwingshoes.com forward slash podcast. See official site for rules and details. All right, so, so Ryan, this has been great. It's um, If people wanted to learn, and actually before I get to this part, if you're listening to us and you have an interest in this, I'm telling you, our research shows that prices are going to come back, not to $100 a barrel, but they're going to come back to $50 to $60 a barrel. So there's a window of prime opportunity for you to work with Raya and make a lot of money, <laughs> which means you need to call him now. Call him today. Raya, if people want to learn more about you and your business, where should they go? So they can, the first best place to go to is my website, which is Energy Funds, and that's funds with a Z. So uh, energyfunds.com. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes so people can just click Thanks. on it. Yeah. And then if people want to connect you personally, LinkedIn? LinkedIn's probably the best way. Yeah, yeah we'll put a LinkedIn profile connection up there too. Yep. And so if you've listened for this long, this is the point where we, I, we talk about the LinkedIn group. I'm not going to do that this time because you all know, go join. It's OGGN. <laughs> I will do this. So can you please, please, if you listen to the show, take the five minutes, go to iTunes, leave us a review. We desperately need reviews for a bunch of reasons, one of which is the more four- and five-star reviews that we have, when people are looking for a good oil and gas HSME podcast, they see a lot of reviews, they realize that this is something quality. So you're actually helping your peers find something that's useful to them. If you were a new listener, we welcome you to the show. Uh, you may want to head over to oilandgashsne.com, our website, where you can sign up. We'll never spam you. Um, but that's where we make all the announcements first. And you can subscribe to this podcast in a gazillion different ways. And we're launching our own internet streaming radio uh, station actually relatively soon. So we're going to be all over the place. 
And then we have to give thanks to our on-the-road sponsor, Lee Heck and Harrison. Uh, they make all of our trips possible. They're global experts in talent management, currently working with over 75% of the Fortune 500 oil and gas companies. So if you have a workforce, <laughs> reach out to Lee Heck and Harrison. They can help you do more with less. At uh, LAHH. LAHH.com. Yep. Yeah. All right. So, um, so Raya, once again, thanks for being on the show. This was awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, John. Um, Patrick, is there anything else you need to go over? Uh, just see if y'all want uh, Mark or myself to come to any of your trade associations, your company events, your schools, uh, meetings, um, industry events. Willing to travel, our calendar's filling up, but we'll uh, come out and talk about HSC or the industry or anything y'all want. Yeah, reach out to us. So we've had a, a reoccurring theme. So we have a bunch of universities reached out to us, and it tends to be w one of two things. They either want us to come record a podcast from their university, which is really cool because we get the audience to participate in the podcast, or they want us to talk about um, you know, HSE type of stuff, especially if you're just getting ready to leave the university and go into the workforce. You know, Patrick and I can come out and speak to your group and help you understand what you need to do to make sure that you grab one of those good jobs. Um, and so just reach out to us, and we'll be happy to share the details. And is that about it? Uh, if you need uh, media sponsors, uh, we, I don't know if we've mentioned much before, a lot of these conferences we go with press. So we cover we cover the event. We try and find good quality speakers that we can talk to. Um, so if you've got some kind of conference that you want to you know, promote and also uh, give us some good content. Yeah, yeah. So if you, ever, if you have a conference out there that's coming up and you'd like us to bring the podcast, the benefit to you if we bring the podcast to the conference is we then – promote it on our on our podcast on our show so you get basically free exposure to have more people sign up either as exhibitors or attend and then when we do the podcast from your event we get to showcase some of your speakers or your vendors once again a win-win for everybody and and reach out to patrick and i would be happy to share the details on that as well now we're ready i think that's it yeah so folks <laughs> don't be afraid to give up the good to go for the great y'all be safe out there Tune in next week for another exciting episode of Red Wings Oil and Gas HSC Podcast, a production of the Global Oil and Gas Network. Learn more from Mark LaCour at modalpoint.com. Connect with Patrick Pister at leanoilfield.com. From Houston to London to Dubai and beyond. first started off my career, one of the, uh, the weirdest things we had was um, hard hat safety or keeping your hard hat on. And I remember we were working on a project and there was this huge debate around chin straps. <laughs> chin straps, the most benign thing. We didn't even have wind. <laughs> <laughs> and so I just remember it getting into heated discussions <laughs> with some of you know, the corporate group as to why we needed chin straps and the budget we had to spend on chin straps. And so <laughs> that was an example of HST going in a direction where it shouldn't have gone yeah. into. <laughs> that was a good one. Well, that being said, it, the first uh, chemical tanker I was on, I was up at the bow. Gust of wind took my hard hat off. Right. I chased it 600 feet down the deck <laughs> until it just went over the side. You were offshore. <laughs> <I was laughs> we were onshore <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. <laughs>